verb. I also would, would like to just share with you a little bit of why this on the screen. Um, one of the things that it is important to see is, is how to interact with the text. And by the way, this is a um, relatively new, and when I say that, I would say that uh, this, this, this kind of interaction with the text um, has been real popular over the last, say, 50, 60, 70 years. So it's not like brand new. I did not invent it. But literally trying to write on the text and to, to look at it, to um, make connections between words and ideas, to, to, to literally slow down and instead of just reading something in a very casual way, uh, to try to dissect it. Now, when I say that, I consistently get Christian people who say, ah, I feel like you're kind of ruining it. I really like to just let the text sit and to just casually observe it. And to that I say, me too. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having different approaches to the Bible. Um, it really depends on what you're trying to do. To be honest with you, I don't do this every time. When I wake up in the morning and I got a cup of coffee and I'm on my back porch or I'm sitting in my living room or I'm just you know, sitting in the car and I've got my phone and I just wanna spend a few moments looking at a text, I don't do this. I, I, I read it and I just kind of reflect on it, on the, on the ideas. So what I'm describing tonight is not the only way to do it. I would even argue it's not even the best way to do it. It is an intentional way to get deeper. That's what it is. And that has some value. So the question I like to ask Christians is, um, I don't think you need to do this all the time. Do you ever do this? Like, do you ever sit down and, and, and try to make sure that you link these ideas together? And usually what happens, and I, I, I've been there, I have to constantly wrestle with this, is usually we don't spend this kind of time or even enough time in God's word. And I guess that's the part that just kind of genuinely concerns me. And so what I wanna do on the screen, as long as it works, I'm always afraid it's gonna freeze on me. Um, what, I, what I will promise I will do is I will get through verse 11 tonight, that I will do. Um, hoping the screens work, if not, I promise you I can preach without this thing. Um, but I do wanna kinda help you see some ways in which I like to mark up a text so that we can deal with it. And the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, I, I really am grateful for guys like Ryan and Steve that know how to help me to do this so that you can see it. But even without them, I can do this on my own. Uh, the beauty of programs right now, like Blue Letter Bible, or the beauty of uh, the Bible app, or the beauty of Version, is the fact that you can literally cut and paste sections of scripture, put them into a word processor, space them out a little bit, and use it differently. And I love that idea. And so my Bible sometimes looks like this. I've got past Bibles. I can't even read anymore because I've got so much lines drawn between them. Um, and I've, I've actually taken more of, a, of, a, of an intentionality in finding my text, printing it off, dabbling with it, playing with it, and then kind of keeping that piece of paper. So these are different things. And, I, and I, again, the reason why we do all of this is so that we might know him better. Okay, we need to know him and we need to know the truth about him and not be settled for a watered down version of God, not a watered down version of Jesus, not a watered down version of what our faith is like, not a watered down version of, of the salvation that we have, not a watered down version of the gospel, but the full on truth. So um, I don't always get it right, but the Bible always does. Let's pray. So God, I thank you for this time that we have, um, the few moments tonight where we can look at these verses and really get a sense of something that matters. Um, and, and yet, truly, there are few of us in this room. I can only think of one named Timothy. Um, and Father, there are uh, maybe one or two Pauls. Um, 
but all of us uh, have a desire, obviously, for us being here to, to know something tonight. And therefore, I'm grateful for Paul the Apostle and Timothy, his true son, and for the opportunity that we have to, uh, to realize that uh, there is a t an intentionality about life and about faith. And uh, I'm just grateful for a time, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock Wednesday night, where we are intentional about this. God, I'm grateful to live in a time and in a place, not where I can uh, show it on a big screen, but genuinely have the luxury to sit in a nice place like this and just think about you. And I don't have to try to figure out how I'm going to eat um, or how I'm going to uh, have a safe place tonight. I just think we take for granted so many of your uh, incredible blessings. Um, so God, I pray that for those reasons, uh, we take with a, a deep sense of gratitude the opportunity that has afforded itself by your grace tonight. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So obviously I have shared with you the kind of the, the, the major issues last week dealing with Paul the author, the great Apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, and then Timothy, um, as he described him last week, my true son in the faith, who has both a Jewish and a Greek background, uh, who has become Paul's companion and Paul's uh, ambassador in many ways to continue the ministry that Jesus Christ gave him. Um, we also realize, and we're going to kind of pick this up in verse 3, which we half did last week, is that there is a, a particular town that he is dealing with that it essentially matters. Um, and I want to talk about it briefly today. It is the town of Ephesus. Um, so this book not only has an author, Paul, and it not only has an audience, Timothy, it also has an extended audience, which is the city of Ephesus. Um, this, this city, probably more than any other city other than Jerusalem, uh, may be the most important city in the New Testament. When I were to just even list the books that somehow have uh, an interest or an effect on, on, on this particular city, the books in the New Testament, if I were to go through them, the Gospel of John, John was probably an elder at the city of Ephesus, so the Gospel of John. Book of Acts describes it uh, quite a bit. As you kind of go through the letters, uh, Colossians is a twin letter. Ephesians, obviously, is a letter directly to them. Um, the letter of Philemon would have a, a correlation to this. First and Second Timothy would have a correlation to this. First and Second and Third John, again, John the writer, elder at Ephesus, would have a correlation to this. And then the book of Revelation, in which the first church mentioned is the church at Ephesus. So this is a, a, a constant theme. We know a lot about this church. Even looking at Paul's uh, journeys in the book of Acts, he spends more time in this place than any other place. So there's a tremendous amount of, of, uh, of uh, instruction that we can actually pull from the Bible that has some influence in, in terms of, of, uh, of this particular church. And one of the things that I want you to just see is that when you look at, and I'll, I'll keep using this as a little bit of a, of a touchstone because we know that by 96 AD, uh, Paul's been dead for about 30 years. John writes the Revelation to the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 3, you can go back and look at it. I think it's verses 1 through 7, maybe 1 through 8. And in that particular letter, he says Jesus' admonition and his, his, uh, his uh, frustration with the Ephesus church as they have what? Do you remember this? Most people do know this. They've forgotten their first love. They've forgotten their first love. And return to the love from which you had at first. 
And what's interesting is it says, I know your deeds. I know how much you love the word. I know how much it really kind of describes them as doctrinal straight arrows. And then it says, and you've forgotten your first love, which is interesting because usually when we hear that, we think they've forgotten their first love and their first love was Jesus. But it's interesting that when you, by the time you line up a lot of the Ephesian material, what you see is a consistent problem that we would hold on to today is what matters most in the church? What matters most as individual believers, the Christian, our beliefs or our behavior? Okay? And so we, keep, we, we, we talk about this over and over and over. It seems like every Wednesday night, I write the word orthodoxy, right belief. And orthopraxy, proper behavior, proper uh, ways in which we, we work with one another. And the church is constantly going back and forth between these two pieces. Um, how do we become doctrinal straight? Well, the problem with doctrinal straight arrows is that they become legalists. Man, you don't want to be a legalist. In the end, the overall ethic, and we'll actually see this come up in our text tonight, instead of it being right belief, right belief. Jim, you care so much about what people believe and what people believe. You're going to miss out on, on, on people. And people matter. And that's the problem. And therefore, and interestingly enough, they're giving me a doctrine when they say this, we need to emphasize love. Love. You've forgotten your first love. And I really believe that what the angel is telling John to write to the church at Ephesus is that they have become so interested in doctrine or they become so interested in making sure that everything is right that they have, they have forgotten love, which is one of the ways, kind of a typical thing that churches can do. They can become so doctrinally sound that they fail to recognize this wonderful doctrine of love, to which I would argue then the answer to this is, again, greater understanding of these truths. So teach me. Teach me how important love is. Illustrate to me from the, uh, from, the, from the Gospels, from the teachings of Jesus Christ, how important love is. So there is no way for us to ever separate belief and doctrine, belief and doctrine. And Timothy will not let us do that. The book of First Timothy will not let us do that. First Timothy, as you see, um, is about to point out rather strongly why Timothy has been sent uh, or actually been challenged to remain at Ephesus has to do with this and this. So what your kids believe and how your kids act is more closely connected than you realize. And so the Apostle Paul is, is, is going to address this. So let's take a look at the text. As I urged you, the word for urge, as I mentioned last week, is the Greek word parakaleo, meaning to encourage or to, to strongly admonish. It's where we get paraclete. It's not the same thing as the Holy Spirit, but it definitely describes one of those attributes. I, 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 I leaned into you and I strongly encouraged you to, to, uh, to, to, when he was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus. Literally, the word remain means stay. You need to stay there. Um, and again, pointing out how complicated it can be to plant a church. Uh, a few of us, six of us, are going to be traveling uh, in, in uh, September to Japan uh, to work uh, alongside some of our missionaries that we've been sponsoring for a really, really long time. And they're doing some church planning in the, uh, on the island of Japan. And they're trying to help people who really don't know the gospel before. Most of Japan is not Christian by any stretch of the imagination. And it is taking a very, very long time for them to have the right understanding 
and the right then belief, uh, or sorry, the right practice about how we live out our faith. And so the challenge that we can see in the New Testament is that Paul would come and he would preach the gospel to a place. A few would believe. Apostle Paul would begin to teach them and then he would have to leave. And so one of the things that you see in the book of Acts is that Paul would sometimes circle back to go back and strengthen the saints, okay? The other thing that he would do is he would send people like Timothy back. I want you to go back and I want you to talk with them and I want you to speak to them. I want you to help them understand Again, what they're supposed to believe and what they're supposed to do. Now, what's interesting is, and and this is where it kind of, this this book always rubs against some of our our, our modern, very individual uh, sensibilities. If you were to kind of think through what matters more, the church as a collective, so us, or an individual Christian, me, you, her, him. And we live in a time and a day and an age where this is probably standing first and foremost. I mean, I've even had conversations with people I deeply respect. And we have to have a conversation about um, a belief behavior that somebody is going through. And I come in and in, in my part of the conversation, I say, now listen, what we need to make sure we do is we need to make sure that we protect the church. We need to make sure that as we uh, speak with people and as we admonish them, that they understand that the decisions that they make, the decisions that I make in my marriage and the privacy of my own home is going to affect those around me. And we really need to make sure that, that people understand this. And then someone else invariably says, yeah, but we got to make sure that we are also careful for them. We, we need to make sure that we protect them. We need to make sure that we, and so it comes back down to kind of one of those age-old questions Do you sacrifice the one for the many? Right? Do you sacrifice the one for the many or the many for the one? What do you do? And and, and all I'm saying is recognize that not necessarily you maybe, but our culture around us believes in sacrificing the many for the one. That's kind of the status quo of today, right? Uh, I listened to a great sermon recently about Tim Keller and he says, this is why in New York City, it's very, very difficult to uh, even have a kind of a normal dialogue on this particular issue because even as something as simple and maybe as universally agreed upon um, within uh, societies that have kind of a, uh, we've already answered this question and he was describing his area of New York like this. He said, even if we were to talk about marriage and marriage laws, who gets to set the standard for that? And so do we make marriage and, and, and divorce something that is complicated and difficult to, in order to protect us, in order to make sure that we are protected and that our children, kind of generically, that we, you know, do, is that what we do or do we make it easy for those who are individuals who are suffering through this? And he just began to describe a number of people's different opinions about exactly how we need to respond to this. And I can, I can, I've, I've talked to a number of people and they care about the him and the her. And, and by the way, we all should. We all should care about the him and the her. And, and then you have the, the bigger picture, the us. What, what is more valuable? Now, again, we get to wrestle with that. The text and the culture in which it was written definitely would consider this to be the primary. Would definitely consider um, that. So when you're coming in and you're reading, uh, I would argue, any book from this time period in this part of the world, 
It is much more of a societal care than, than just an individual. And don't hear that, okay, this is the problem. You go, yeah, that's right, they never cared about individuals. No, what they cared about and what they, what they recognized or what they would argue is that the individual is deeply um, moved, uh, supported, or encouraged by societal structures, right? And so that would be their argument. That again, it takes a, it, it, it takes a whole group of people to, to be healthy. And we would argue, we argue kind of for the individual rights of a, of a person. You know, even in my own, my mind kind of, uh, as much as I kind of think I, I'm this guy, it's amazing how when it's me or my kids or my friend, I become this guy, right? But the text is going to do this. Now, why does that matter? Because a, a huge word that we don't like is going to be front and center for this entire section. And then the word is authority. So Paul is going to be using some rather strong language. And when we hear this, um, whenever I, I've gone through this book in a number of different contexts lately, um, usually with, uh, with, with, with young men, and it's interesting that as I'm talking about it, it just sounds strong. It just sounds like intense. It sounds different the way than we talk. We talk about, we should cast a vision. We should rally support. You know what I mean? We should win people over, which... I'm not against, I get it, okay? I'm a product of my age, born in 1968. I mean, I, I, I am, I'm a product of my age. And then I read a text like this, and here's what Paul says. I urged you, encouraged you, while I was going to Macedonia, you stay at Ephesus so that, here's the purpose, you may, and then here is a key word, so that you may actually charge. That word is kind of like a, uh, it, sometimes the, I think the NL, NIV in the uh, NLT translated command. How many of you like being commanded? How many of you like when I sit down, hey, I'm, not, I'm, I'm here to let you know what you can and cannot do. How many of you just go, I so love it when Jim does that. I wish he would do more of that. I, I really do. I wish that there, there was more of that command kind of a sense. That, that's what we're really missing in our culture today is someone, now usually what we're thinking is that when, and by the way, when we agree, yeah, we should command. When we disagree, you are so bossy. Like you are so bossy. What is wrong with you? But the word is a rather strong word that the, the Apostle Paul is using. So here he is establishing this church. He has shared with them their core doctrine and they are beginning to live out their core practices and as we're going to see, someone is coming in and unsettling that. Someone is coming in and saying, hey, I'd like to share with you another way of looking at it. And Paul goes, whatever you do, don't let that happen. Right? And, when I, and, and maybe I am such a product of my time. It is so interesting that the Apostle Paul says, I want you to charge. He doesn't list him by name. And, and by the way, he will list people by name that are uh, causing serious problems. But here he just gives kind of a generic uh, it's a generic Greek word that just means certain persons. So I'm not going to say who they are, but I want you to charge them. I want you to command them. The term has like a legal, uh, a kind of a legal strength to it. I want you to command certain persons not to teach a different doctrine or any different doctrine. The word there is the word for uh, teaching, didasko, and then the word other, hetero, hetero didasko. I, don't, I want you to stop them. I want you to command them. I want you to keep them from teaching another teaching, literally what it is, another teaching, which goes back to the question, 
when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who gets to set it? And this is what actually matters. This is why I, I, I really have, I've wondered, so why are you guys coming on Wednesday night to hear about First Timothy? It's a book about like church and church leadership. And some of you are going, um, my kids are down the hall. That's why I'm here. I'm glad you're here, okay? But this is what matters. The gospel actually matters. And I, I know that I, I really do, I feel capable to be able to, to sense a different gospel. I think I could, I could smell it. I think I could, could recognize it because I know the scriptures. Um, and, and as an eldership, we're ready to, to even help this church make sure that it stays on task, okay? And I wanna just kind of extend a little bit and say, but can you, like in your home, can you get a sense of, of, of when the gospel begins in some way to be distorted, when it somehow um, becomes altered? And what Paul is telling Timothy is, I want you to stay at Ephesus, and I want you to recognize your authority, Timothy, and I want you to start commanding, I want you to tell people to stop teaching a, a doctrine, a, a belief system that is contrary to the way that it is. So, in our, in our culture, we're like, well, doesn't, any, doesn't everybody get to choose what they want to believe? Like, who, who gets to decide? I mean, this is the way our culture, we become so relativistic and, to so, and be, being so pluralistic that we fail to recognize the value and the importance. By the way, what's at stake if Timothy doesn't do this? The eternal destiny of people. That's what's, that's what's hanging in the balance. The eternal destiny of people. This is why... Um, and I do, and we should, care so much about our children's education and our children's health. And I just, I, I, I'm curious to know, do we have the same passion for their, uh, for their spiritual growth, for their spiritual lives? And do we recognize that there are, in our culture, people who are giving another gospel? And can you smell it? Can you confront it? Can you deal with it? And the trajectory of people, even within this church, if, if we're not careful, um, one commentary says this, that Timothy's primary purpose, okay, is to guard the gospel. And I, I've heard this a lot lately. I don't know if it's because I'm in this Timothy material. I've heard this a lot. God doesn't need me to, uh, to protect him. And God doesn't need me to, uh, to, to, to defend him. And the truth doesn't need me to defend it. And I want to say, I agree. I really do. God doesn't need me. It doesn't. The, tr the truth doesn't need me. It, it, it'll, it'll be fine. And yet, the Bible actually teaches. I mean, Andrea could say, you know, the kids don't need me to feed them. The kids don't need me to drive them to school. And I just want to go, well, then who's going to feed them? I can't feed them. I don't know how. I can't. I, I mean, so... It's interesting that when we look at this, that we want to say, hey, I don't need to be the one. I don't need to be, but Paul is actually commanding Timothy to stand there and to command these people, do not teach another doctrine. Verse four, it continues, nor, and the word there for nor basically says this is a continuation. You need to stop people from teaching a doctrine that is different than, other, than, than the doctrine that I've told you. And you also need to keep people from devoting themselves to two things. Number one, myths, and then number two, endless genealogies. These two things most likely give us a little bit of a hint into what is being stirred up in the city of Ephesus. 
The city of Ephesus, as we know kind of later on, has not only a very strong Greek influence and even a Roman imperial cult that exists in the city of Ephesus. It is also a business town, so it has a lot of commerce, a lot of coming and going, and it is a very strong Jewish center. Now remember, Christianity is coming out of a Jewish context, and it is moving from just a strictly Jewish context. Um, They worship the same God. Jesus himself was a Jew. And now all of a sudden, as time goes on, not only do we have Jews who are followers of Jesus, but we're beginning to add Greeks who are followers of Jesus. And you're going to see this constant wrestling match between what do you need to do to be a Christian? What do you need to be a follower of God? What do you need to be to be faithful to Yahweh? What do you need to do? And there is within the Ephesian church, obviously, a strong interest in holding on to things like Myths, which would be stories from ancient times, and genealogies. How many of you have read your Bible and you get hung up in a genealogy? Right? Even in the, even in the New Testament. Luke's got this really long genealogy. Why? Genealogies are really strong in Jewish culture to help you understand kind of how God's plan works. And people get hung up by genealogies. See, what's interesting is if, if false teachings, if other teachings were absolutely clear, if it was just um, clearly dark and you could just notice it that simply, then there wouldn't be such a need for Timothy to stand up and to stop people and to be so proactive about it. The problem is, is that there is a fascination or an interest in some of these small things and what we see Timothy dealing with here is myths and genealogies. So basically what it becomes, it's the gospel and let me just give you a definition of the gospel. I'm gonna, I, I say it almost, almost every Sunday I say this, that the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins and then came to establish a kingdom where that truth would, 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 would reign and grow and, and be established. So that is truly what the gospel is all about. It's not just about salvation. It is about God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. Jesus is in fact king. So if that is what is happening and if that is what is going on, that when anybody takes the gospel, which is Jesus, plus, and then you can kind of fill in the blank. Jesus plus had a, a kind of one of, my, one of my longest times on Sunday. A lot of people had some thoughts and questions about the sermon. Um, one of the gentlemen that I had a, a really interesting time to, to met with him this week and we talked and talked and talked. He had so many questions about the Bible. And I, I, it, was, it, was, um, it was fascinating to watch him, I won't say get hung up because they were, they were very legitimate questions, but he wanted to know things to which I would say, those don't matter as much as other things. Can I put it that way? They don't really matter as much. Um, did God continue to make things after... Um, after the seven days of creation, right? Because when you read the Genesis narrative, Genesis 2 comes in and it seems like, seems like it's a little bit different. And by the way, I, 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 that's not, it's not a dumb question. It's just a question that actually stands outside of scripture, right? And, and this, is, this, this happens to us. We, we want to know things. We, want to, we have that, this insatiable desire for us to know things. So part of it is a good thing. Then we begin to add to that somebody who has a keen insight or an understanding. Well, you know what Rabbi so-and-so says. You know what Pastor so-and-so says, okay? So now all of a sudden you've got this keen interest and then a little bit more. 
and it just goes on and on and on. And if we're not careful, what we literally have is a gospel plus. A gospel plus something else. And, and what, what Paul is telling, telling Timothy is, I want you to be proactive. I want you to be intentional about recognizing these things as false, and I want you to tell people to stop doing it. Now, what do these myths and genealogies do? And here's what's interesting. They promote speculation. They literally, instead of it being an answer to questions, it promotes, um, it, it promotes this level of, of speculation. And that kind of speculation is, uh, kind of has with it the, the idea of kind of these on and 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 on discussions that really don't go anywhere. Now, now by the way, this is, take some discernment here. Some of it you go, well, Jim, I think you do that a lot. Like, I mean, it's, it's common for you to say something, and I really wonder if it matters, because I want to come back to the core things. There is a God, there is a Jesus, we should love one another. Like, after, other than that, isn't it too much? And I want to say, not to defend myself, because I need to hear the, this text and repent when I step over, okay? But we need the Holy Spirit's discernment to figure out if what we are dealing with in our discussions of who God is and who Jesus Christ is and what the gospel is, if it's too little, what does a person need to be saved? Need to do to be saved? And then you answer a very short understanding. What does it mean to be holy? And you answer a very short understanding. I would say, instead of saying, I'm, I'm for the simple, okay? I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to keep it bare bones. There's a time in which that actually just fails to teach the depth or the riches of the scriptures. And I, I need to hear that sometimes there is too much. Like sometimes it's good for us to say, um, one, of the, one of the great Bible verses actually says, I did not, uh, I, I did not wrestle with or I did not force my mind to deal with things that were too marvelous for me. I, I contented myself in terms of what I could understand and what I couldn't. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is, listen, um, the Bible calls us to know more. The Bible calls us to a deeper understanding of who God is. And many of us today are, are satisfied with what my challenge would be, too little. Too little. If I were to ask you, how does a person get saved? What is salvation? Um, you, you might still wrestle with trying to explain that. One of the things I try to tell the guys that I'm, uh, that I'm working with on a regular basis, there's certain um, elemental questions that you should be able to answer. Who is Jesus? Who is God? What is the human condition? How does a person get saved? Is Jesus Christ coming back? I mean, there are some fundamental questions that you need to be able to. And then others where I would say, it's actually okay for you to not have everything figured out. And I would even say that too much of this, too much of, a, of an interest in the small things can actually lead to, and what we see in the Bible, pride, distortion of the truth, because if you begin to, if everything is important, then nothing is important. So the Apostle Paul says, I want you to command these people not to devote themselves to myths or to endless genealogies, which brought speculation, rather than the stewardship from God, and that word, the stewardship, literally is a, is a word where it describes God's plan and his work in the world. So what Paul is telling Timothy to be aware of is that God has a plan and a work in the world. And that plan and that work is the establishment of his church. 
and there are people that are coming along and they're trying to distort it. And you need to confront them. Instead of getting wrapped up on side issues, we need to go back to the task at hand. You need to remember the, the value and the importance of the gospel. The other thing that is really important for us to remember when I hear a word like stewardship, it means that there will be um, an account that is made. There will become, in, 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 in biblical terms, um, like you're gonna have to give a, a response or you're going to be held accountable for the entrusting uh, that God has given you. And, and, and let me hear, this is where in the end, for those of us who presume to be teachers or leaders, God will hold us accountable for Sunnybrook. I fully expect to be held accountable for um, the ministry and the mission of Sunnybrook Christian Church. <laughs> I don't know if you're asking, so why are you doing this? And I'll tell you why I'm doing this, because God has put it on my heart to do this, okay? By the way, that doesn't mean I'm the only one responsible. It just means that for those of me, Bible teachers want to be teachers, there is a stewardship of God's plan. Now, for those of you that go, yeah, that's why I'm not in ministry, okay? Anyone, have a, anyone, anyone married? Raise your hand if you're married. I will never forget one of the greatest lessons I learned from a good friend of mine, Professor, Professor Snell, um, my good friend Jeff. He, he looked at me and he was just describing his, um, the weight of the stewardship of the gifts of his wife. He just loved his wife and said, man, my wife is so gifted and so talented. She is just, she's got so many uh, abilities that God has given to her. And there are days I just think, wow, I am not, not the only one. Hear me, she's got her own responsibility. But Jeff said, but I have been given a responsibility to help care for her. And I remember going, okay, thanks for ruining the rest of my life, Jeff. If I didn't think the church was hard enough, now I have Andrea too? And I remember Andrea reminding me, every time we had a young boy come into our home, <laughs> Andrea would say, and, and they're gods. And there's a stewardship here. So there is a stewardship. And that, that word stewardship literally means that God has entrusted, therefore God has an expectation, therefore in a very real sense, both application and interpretation of the text, Timothy has been sent to go to the church at Ephesus to make sure they stay on course for the gospel. Don't get derailed with him, with genealogies, with things that they're trying to add to. We can figure out, you can wrestle with what yours are. I'll give some suggestions at the end of tonight. But then as it continues to go on, we've been given a stewardship. There is a plan that God is doing. I love this. There's a plan that God is doing in our city. There's a plan that God is doing in my marriage. There's a plan that God is doing with my children. There's a plan that God is doing in my community. There's a plan that God is doing in my business. There's a plan that God is doing and a work that God is doing, and I'm a part of that. I can't bypass it. I can't pretend it's not true. I can't hide or put my head in the sand. And, and I would say... Can you imagine if we, the church, recognized that obligation and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, like again, don't just run and put your head in the, in the sand. Don't just run and hide from it because God would never give us an obligation. God would never send Timothy or actually Timothy to remain, to stay in Ephesus if he wasn't going to give them the power and the wisdom and the strength to see it through. And that is what is so critical for us to recognize. I want you to stay there. Do not deal with these things, but instead promote the stewardship that is from God and that is by faith. So the means that all of this comes about 
um, the, the, the stewardship, this, this plan comes from him and it finds at its very core the issue of faith. So that word faith is a key word that we see. It literally means, and this is where we've kind of lost it in our day and age, faith means to put our hope or to put our trust in, to put our trust in. So if I say it, if I believe in you, if I say I, I trust you, it has something. So faith is not just this blind wish. It is no. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have my faith in that which I believe to be reliable and strong and true. Paul goes on. So what is the aim of this? What is the, what is the kind of the source or the main or the purpose of it? He continues on. The aim of our charge is love. Paul, it almost seems like he can't talk about faith with also talking about love. The aim of our charge is love. So why are you doing this, Paul? And, and, and by the way, I had a fun conversation today. I love my job. I had a fun conversation today with a young lady who was trying to share the gospel with a friend of hers who was an atheist. And they were getting into a debate about, in, in their circle, what is known as the, um, the psychology or the philosophy of religion. And this friend was describing that hell and other certain doctrines are basically sociological phenomenon that were developed by the church as a means of controlling its people, right? So culture or society, you're welcome, culture or society essentially comes along and says, how can I control you? Oh, I know what I do. I say you're gonna go to hell. You know, you don't listen to God, I mean me, I mean God, I mean me. You're gonna go to hell. By the way, that is a philosophy of religion that says the reward system of heaven, the punishment system of hell is just a means of control. And so you could take whole classes on the philosophy of religion and that is what they, they propagate. That is what they believe. That is what they argue. Is that what Paul is doing? When, when Paul says, Timothy, I need you to stay there and it matters. Why are you saying that, Paul? Like, why do you care so much about doctrine? Why do you care so much about behavior? And the Apostle Paul, now you can, you can say, I don't know if I see it or not, but it's interesting. Paul makes it very, very clear. The reason why I care so much about what we believe, the reason why I care so much about how we live our lives, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from three things together, which by the way, you can't separate them. Okay, these three things actually come, I'm not gonna explain to you how the grammar works, but these three things go together. So it is, it is talking in its entirety, and we'll see a bad list at the end of our text tonight. You literally look, have to look at this in its entirety and saying, like, Timothy, this is what a, the character of, a, of an individual who has been transformed by this gospel, this is what it looks like. Good catch. Look at this. A pure heart, he says, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So these three ideas are actually linked together. So they're not three different ideas. It's not a pure heart plus a good conscience plus a sincere faith. The way it's constructed, it says like all of these things coincide together, that this is what a person of integrity actually looks like, which is a wonderful thing for us as Christian believers to be, to be drawn back to. Like I know when, if I were teaching this to other pastors, I would ask these questions is the aim of your, of your desire or of, of, of your hope in an individual, does it really come from a pure heart, a good conscience, and, and a sincere faith? Because the book of Timothy loves to say that, and, and, and you tell me if I'm wrong on this, that there are certain church people that are in it for ulterior motives, that they don't have a sincere faith. They have, um, Paul actually warns about this, you need to be very careful that 
uh, Timothy, you watch out for people who are trying to do it to manipulate people and, and to get rich, to make money, to have wealth. And if that's the case, you need to confront it and you need to expose it for what it is. And this is why it is so important, even when we do like a, a 101 class, that we, we recognize that our message, I, I love this, my message is tied to my life. On my evaluations, and it's been actually probably too long since I've done one with the elders, but in my evaluations, I love the fact that I had a section on Jim Johnson's holiness. You know, and, and by the way, I, it wasn't like, is he, is he an A or a B or a C or a D? It was, it was it, it's deeper, it's, 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 it's richer than that. But it's asking and, and recognizing the question that, um, and, and, and by the way, my, it's not my, only my holiness that matters. Okay, like I, I gotta deal with my holiness and you need to deal with yours. But there has to be in the God's plan, God's work for the church amongst its leadership and amongst its members, these things. There must be a sincere faith. There must be a good conscience. There must be a pure heart. And so that is where Timothy is saying, listen, all of these things come from this particular source, which eventually is love. Verse six, he says, certain persons, so now he's kind of creating uh, some kind of an opposite. He's already used the word earlier, uh, certain persons. Uh, it's kind of a generic way of describing him, and he's not afraid to, to name names. But here he says, certain persons, by swerving from these, now what are the these? By swerving from a good heart and a conscience and a sincere faith, have wandered, and that is an intentional wandering. So here's one of the problems when we, we look at different words, is sometimes we look at a word like wander and we think, oh yeah, like I wasn't paying attention. No, this is actually like an intentional wandering that is led by speculation. So it is an intentional walking away from God's plan. By swerving from these, have wandered into, a, into vain discussion, which goes back to the teaching, which goes back to the, to the speculation. And why? He says, because they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying, so that be, would, be, would be content, or the things about which they make these confident assertions. So the Apostle Paul is describing to Timothy this temptation that leaders have to go on and on and on about these issues that they don't know about, that they don't understand, and now they want to hold people to these same standards. This is what is happening in the church at Ephesus. And Timothy has been called to remain there so that somehow they will actually, uh, you will actually deal with these issues. This statement here, I thought this was actually kind of interesting. The statement, teachers of the law, is actually found, so it's, it's one Greek word, it's actually found in only one other place in the Bible, Acts chapter five, verse 34. And it is used to describe a man by the name of Gamaliel. How many of you know that name, Gamaliel? Who is he? Paul's teacher. Paul studied under him. And he is a teacher of the law. And so there really can be like this desire for those people. There can be one of, the, one of the great Bible teachings that we're going to see in this text coming up in chapter three, we're going to see the apostle Paul say, hey, elders shouldn't be new to the faith or else they will become pride like the devil and could create a problem. And so there is an interest that people have. 
in, 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 in fascinating things and in myth, myth, myths and, and genealogies. And Paul is saying we need to be very, very careful about how we understand and how we uh, propagate that truth. And Timothy, it's your job to set it straight. Okay? Verse 8. And now we know that the law, and that's going to be a key idea in this particular theme here, the law, there could be another, a number of different ways that we could try to understand that law. It could be a small L law, which it actually has here. We know that the law is good. So is it the moral law, just kind of the general moral compass that we all have? Or could it be also the Torah? It should be more of a capital L law, right? The law that actually came down from Moses. Um, I, I do believe what the Apostle Paul is describing is almost like a combination of the two of those things. He says, and, and notice the connection between law and the genealogies and the myths. Now, we know that the law is good if someone uses it lawfully, which means that there are ideas and doctrines that have importance. We live in a day and in an age where it is really popular for there to be no law kind of an anti-lawlessness, because why? The good news is we don't live under law, we live under grace. And by the way, that's actually true. The Apostle Paul speaks very clearly about grace. I do believe that as, as a, as a, in, a, in a time and as a church, we fail to recognize just how beautifully these things work together and how the, the Jewish people understood the law given to them as grace, not as a means of grace. Hear me. The law is not a means of grace, but it actually can be a sign of God's grace. The Jewish people considered the law to be, um, instead of it being like a, a God or a deity that never explains its expectations, but just reminds people of their failure, God says, here is who I am, here is my character, here is what I desire from you. Man, I'm so glad you told me. I'm so glad you were clear with expectations. And so the Jewish people looked at the law, which revealed the character of God and his expectation, and said, thank you. You have to be very careful turning it a means. That what would that be? That would be an unlawful use of the law, an inappropriate use of the law. What we, what we warn against on a regular basis. If you think that by obeying the law, that by being a good person, that by these things you might somehow gain God's love or God's favor, that you might gain God's approval or God's justification, him saying, you have mastered this, then you misunderstand the law. But he says, hey, listen, we know that the law is good, so don't just throw it out. Don't just throw out the ideas of the law. We know that the law of good, if one uses it lawfully, understand this, that the law is not laid, and the word literally is, uh, that word made or laid down is like in its legal sense, is what the, what the Greek word means. It's not, it's not put in place legally for the just, but for the lawless. So notice the comparisons between these two categories. So why does God give the law? And Paul says God gives the law because we are lawbreakers. <laughs> That's why. If we, if, we, if we had hearts, if we had ways that would, would naturally pursue God, the law doesn't matter to us. But we are lawbreakers. We are selfish. Like you need to help me understand. Really? I shouldn't steal stuff? Because stealing stuff, I remember finding out that I shouldn't steal stuff as a kid. And I'm just thinking, That's crazy because I like other people's stuff. Why shouldn't I take it? Well, would you like it if they take it from you? Oh, no, that's a good point. I never thought of that. Is it yours? Oh, that's another good point, Dad. I never thought of that. Because just on my own, I like the idea of taking stuff. 
okay? I remember chocolate bars from stores, dollar bills from my parents' wallet, and a dollar bill back in like 1973 was like a billion dollars, right? Come home with like three pockets full of candy. Where'd you get the candy from? Ah, they were giving it away. Now I'm lying. So do you see what happens? There is this, why does the law come in? The law comes in because by our nature that we are lawless. So this, the law was laid down or made, it was, it was, it was produced in a, in a very legal sense, not for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. And so Paul, who is describing that, let's stay track on the gospel, now begins to say there are going to be those that are going to distort something that is good, and they're going to distort it with the means of changing the gospel. It's not been given to the lawless, but for the disobedient sinners. Uh, disobedient and ungodly sinners. So these categories um, are ways in which the Apostle Paul is describing those around Timothy. He says, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers or mothers, fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, which I find fascinating. Now, let me, let me back up a little bit. If you look at these categories, here's what I find interesting. That the, 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 the first categories of, for the lawless, disobedient, the ungodly, sinners, the unholy, the profane, um, all of that actually lines up against the commands of God that have to deal with things that we do with him. To be profane, to be rebellious, to be, to, be, to be that way is all of offenses that we have against God because the command that Paul says comes from love. And as soon as I say that, most of us should be able to think that there's two great commands of love. The two great commands of, of love for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ is number one, we should love who? God. And Paul gives a long list of things that people who don't love God they're lawless, they're disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. So that's God. After we're done loving God, the second commandment, which is like the first, is what? We should love who? Others. Think of even the Ten Commandments. The first part of Paul's list describes the first four commandments. And the second part of the list, it's almost like he's walking through Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus 20. Look at this list. For those who strike their fathers and their mothers, because by the way, we are called to do what to our fathers and mothers? Honor them. And then he says for murderers, and the Bible says that we should not what? Murder. And then it says the sexually immoral, and that category there um, can be used and most often is used for the issue of adultery, but it actually is a, a little bit of a broader category as well. So it's not just about adultery, it is also about sexual immorality. Men who practice homosexuality. Um, this is outside of the scope of our conversation uh, tonight, um, but I, I think probably in light of that, uh, the, the, the use of this one word, um, it is found twice in the Bible, once in 1 Corinthians and then once here, um, and, and, and there are even different words, okay? Um, Paul has one word that he uses in the 1 Corinthian material where he warns against homosexuality, and then he's got another word here um, that is actually used, and it fit within, uh, I mean, these are things that are kind of like it's almost impossible to argue. The category for sexual immorality was, was rather large. In our day and age, it's, we've, we've really tried to justify almost every kind of sexual deviant behavior. It's crazy how, how much we try to do that. 
The Bible had big categories for it, and then it would break it down. Pornea, where we get the word pornography, was this all fornication. Do not be fornicators. What is that? That's a lot of things. You want me to give you the list of what they are? Yeah, we don't do these things. Why? Because, going back to it, because of the doctrine of who we are. Image bearers of God. Because of who we are. You're my sister in Christ. I'm your brother in the Lord. Who we are. We are redeemed people. So at once we tried to gratify the, 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 the fleshly desires, but now we don't. I mean, my primary goal isn't to be satisfied in that sense. But no, I mean, I've, got a, I've got a new life. I've got a new path. And notice how quickly the Apostle Paul is kind of going through this list and describing these things, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, which this is, I didn't know this, Interesting, the word enslavers is usually a word that was used for thieves. So we kind of think of slavery and we have a different view of it, but how did you usually get slaves back then? Guess how you got them? Stealing people. And so that concept there is, it's, it's, it truly is it's stealing individuals, but it's kind of still following the line of the, of the great commandments of God that people are breaking. Liars and perjurers, Thou shalt not what? Bear false witness. Liars and perjurers. And what's interesting is he just listed a whole bunch of what? Behaviors or beliefs? Behaviors. Unholy, profane, all these different things. And then he says, and why do they do that? They do that because they do not follow sound doctrine. I just, I love the ending in that. And this is why having conversations about what we do and what we believe should be side by side. In the church, in our homes, this, this is why, um, you know, as, as, I'm, as, as, as I and, and a few others teach through this stuff on Wednesday night, I guess one of the, the, one of the big things I hope that we are able to, uh, to do in this is to create a greater interest and appreciation for a church that cares deeply not just about behavior, but doctrine. And not just about doctrine, but, but, but behavior. But there is that constantly, that, that, that weaving together, that, that connection. And, and I, I need to be kept in check. I, I need to be able to, uh, to hold to what Paul says to Timothy uh, in terms of my conscience and my pure heart and my sincere faith. That I need to be held in check in terms of what I preach and what I teach. And I need to be held in check in terms of my behavior as we look at this list, which, by the way, there is a beautiful path of forgiveness. And Paul has a similar list to this in Corinthians, the other place in which the word um, uh, homosexual offenders is used. And by the way, you know how it's used there? A very similar list. He says this, you were once these things. So I love the fact that it's not, yeah, these are the bad guys. But Paul is very clear, this, the kind of behavior that is described in this list just doesn't fit within Christian circles. This kind of behavior is not accepted. It's not embraced. Why? Because we care about the mission of the church, the stewardship and the plan of work of, of the church. By the way, it's made up of individuals. So I love the, 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 the weaving together. I, I love the, the fact that we can actually care for both the community of faith and the individuals within that community of faith by doing what? 
by being reminded what sound doctrine is, by not being trapped in mere speculation, by recognizing that the Bible is very, very clear, that the laws of God are good, not as a means of grace, but as a depiction of what a life should look like in light of somebody who's being obedient to God. In that sense, the Apostle Paul has no problem with the issues of law. He actually even says, like, when we do these things naturally, we fulfill, that's the word Paul likes to use, we fulfill the law. So instead of being slaves to the law, instead of being kind of held captive to the law, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can now, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, fulfill this. So instead of this list looking like, like us, it doesn't look like us anymore. And it is all based on the interweaving together of behavior and belief. Last verse, verse 11. All of these things, um, and by the way, these, these things are that are against. The law is not laid down for the just, um, but for the lawless, for these people, and then it kind of gives these lists. And then he describes this wonderful big picture that God has, and I love this line, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And that word entrust goes back to what we talked about earlier in terms of the stewardship question. We are entrusted as stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of these things happen, I love that line, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So all of this plan that we have with the law, all of this plan that we have in terms of the gospel is designed by God to bring about peace to bring about a way of living to bring about not only our redemption but also our restoration and the apostle paul desires for all of us to see this and to live in this and i guess the challenge that you and i have to continually have when we look at uh, just you know these eight verses in a book like for uh, first timothy is to say okay so so what do i do with this like how do i how do, how do i relate to this jim like I'm not Timothy, I'm not Paul, I'm not in Ephesus. So what does this have to do with it? And I, I, I keep coming back to the idea that we have been entrusted, maybe, maybe obviously different people, but we have been entrusted to care for those that God has given to us. And we have been challenged by him and also strengthened by him to make sure that we do our part. For what reason? Verse 11. So that they might experience, and so the world might experience, the blessed glory, or the, sorry, the, the, the glorious uh, gospel of the blessed God. And this is his plan. And he does all of these things. And Paul is trying to help Timothy understand, listen, fight for this. Do not let this go. Let's pray. So God, I thank you for um, entrusting us Thank you for the fact that uh, it is easy for us to, to fail to see um, some of these connections. Does it really matter what people think? Does it really matter what people believe? It really ma matters more about what they do, and that is just not true. Well, then it only matters what we think, and that is not true either. That There really is, in your word, this constant blending together. And therefore, may we give due diligence to knowing the truth, and then also living in the truth. God, may we live lives that are um, honest and transparent. God, may we be a community of faith that um, doesn't just know how to critique like this list that we have, 
but that, Father, we recognize that there is even still hope for those. I, I love the reminder that the Apostle Paul gives. Um, it's not that we, we, we don't ever deal with these things, but we never embrace them. But we confess them, that we find forgiveness in Jesus. And that truly is a part of the gospel. I pray that we would recognize that and see that. Father, may we be a church um, that just definitely cares about you. And that, God, we would honor you with our minds. And that we would honor you um, with our bodies and with our lives, with the, with the gifts that you have given us. Uh, we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.